Good morning. If you will, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew 1. I'm going to read Matthew 1, 1 through 17 as a way to begin an Advent series. So if you will turn there, Matthew 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 17 as we've entered the Christmas season. The first advent or first coming of our Lord is being celebrated, celebrating the incarnation of God's Son as He took humanity to Himself to save us from our sins. We're reflecting upon the promised and long-awaited Messiah. So in our sermon this morning, we're going to consider Matthew 1, 1 through 17, and then on the Lord's Day next week, which Christmas happens to fall upon, in the morning we'll continue in Matthew 1. And in the evening service that day, we will pick up Matthew 2, or a portion of Matthew 2, to continue reflecting upon Christ's coming. And I hope you'll join us in all of that as we have the privilege of worshiping our Lord together, reflecting on what He's done. So look with me at Matthew 1, 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon. And Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh the father of Amos. And Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok. And Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathon, and Mathon the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let me pray. Father, we pray that we would receive this as what it is, the Word of God. Most expressly, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the new creation, the coming of the long-awaited and promised Messiah, our Lord and Savior. May you give us, by your Spirit, the ability to put aside all earthly cares and to place our hearts and minds And focus upon this, your word, in our Lord Jesus Christ, 
May we grow in love and trust in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we've been in the book of Genesis for some time. And I suppose I want to begin this morning by pointing out, really, that our introduction to Matthew is something like the Genesis of the New Testament. Look at how Matthew 1.1 starts. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This language really is essentially the same as what we read in Genesis 5.1. Listen to Genesis 5.1. The book of the generations, or genealogy, of Adam. The book of the generations, or genealogy, of Adam. Now we open Matthew 1.1 and we hear the book of the generations, or genealogy, of Jesus Christ. And we have here, in these two books, or these two genealogies, the first man, Adam, of the old creation, being compared, if you will, to the second man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the Adam of the new creation. And if you remember... In the book of Genesis, which I hope you do because we were just there last week. If you remember in the book of Genesis, we get a genealogy followed by a kind of story or history. So we get a genealogy of a figure and then a story or a history of that figure. So we're going to receive the same in Matthew. Today we consider the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And look at what follows the genealogy. Look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So you have a genealogy, and then you're going to get the story or the history of that figure of whom the genealogy is about. So today we consider the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah. And as we consider this text, I really want to take it under two themes this morning, really two themes. And this isn't going to break down in the order of verses. I'm just going to give you the themes and pick up the text as we go along. First, the Lord is faithful to his covenant promise. That's the first theme we're going to look at. The Lord is faithful to his covenant promise. Second theme, the Lord is abundantly gracious to sinners. The Lord is abundantly gracious to sinners. Essentially, what I'm arguing What I'm arguing, if you will, my two points break down, or two themes break down, around the last phrase of Psalm 145, 13. I want you to hear this phrase. You don't have to turn there. But this is really going to sum up the whole sermon. Actually, in the two parts of this phrase, you're hearing both points of my sermon. The Lord, part one, is faithful in all his words. And kind in all his works. That's the sermon in a nutshell. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. So let's consider our first theme. The Lord is faithful to his covenant promise or the Lord is faithful in all his words. We have a faithful God. You know, Scripture comforts us over and over again With these words. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. That's your God. The Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Know that. That is your God. My goal is to show you how that's actually Matthew's first concern in this genealogy. Matthew is demonstrating the Lord's faithfulness to his covenant promise. He's demonstrating it. Now Matthew's doing that through providing us with a genealogy of Jesus Christ. And I want to look briefly at three features of this genealogy that demonstrate what Matthew's clear focus is. So first, because I've taught you what an inclusio is, it's a kind of bracketing 
on two sides of a text that tell you the whole text there is really about that thing that brackets it. So actually the book of Matthew is bracketed. There's a big inclusio around the book of Matthew, Matthew one twenty three, And you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then Matthew 28.20, I will be with you always. And you learn in Matthew that what brackets this book is this is the book about God with us. And here we have an inclusio in verses 1 and verse 17. So look at verse 1 and I'll show you this. The book of the genealogy, now notice the three names, of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now look at verse 17, and you're going to see the three names reversed. So all the generations from Abraham, last one in verse 1, from Abraham to David, second one in verse 1, or middle one, from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, from Abraham to David to exile, from David to exile, from exile to Christ. That is what this genealogy is about. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. God's promise to Abraham coming through David to the Christ second quick feature of this genealogy I want to look at. I want to look at the quick movements from Abraham to David. Look at Matthew 1 and verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob, now notice this, the father of Judah and his brothers. We just left out all other 11 tribes. Judah and his brothers, because you're driving to David You're skipping the history of all the rest of the tribes of Israel, and you're focused on this one. Look, keep going. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, now note the emphasis, Jesse, the father of David, The king. You hear the emphasis there? So there's a quick movement from Abraham to David focused on David as the king. The third feature which you've probably already picked up is that we move from Abraham to David, which is really moving you from Genesis 12 all the way through to 2 Samuel and then into Kings under Solomon and the wicked kings. That's the first era. From Abraham to David. Second Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David that his son will sit on the throne forever. Okay, From Abraham to David. And then from David to the exile. You go from David to Solomon to a series of godly and wicked kings all the way until Israel's in exile under Babylon. And from the exile under Babylon... To the Christ. That's what they're focused on. In other words, they break the Old Testament down in three eras. Matthew does here. Breaks it down in three eras. Abraham to David. David to exile. Exile to Jesus. But why 14 generations? Notice that in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ... 14 generations. Now, I want you to hear this. There's actually more than 14 generations. Matthew has selected and offered you 14 generations. I know we don't do history that way, but they did. Now, he's chosen his story for theological purposes. He isn't leaving out details because he's committing some error and forgotten about history. Luke gives us much more detail there in Luke 3. What's he doing? He's intentionally drawing your attention to these three movements in the Old Testament to the Christ. Now, why 14? Why did he choose 14 generations? He could have chosen 
12 generations if he wanted to. He could have chosen 15 generations, I suppose. Why 14? Why did he choose to arrange these particular men, fathers and kings, if you will? The two most compelling arguments for that are first that the eras are arranged evenly around sevens. 14 is two sevens. And the purpose that they're arranged evenly around sevens is to focus on the fullness of time. Seven, if you know, in the Bible often emphasizes the fullness of time. So there's seven days in a week. And so the idea is from Abraham to David, from David to exile, from exile to the Christ in these, if you will, sevens and sevens and sevens is pointing you to this phrase in Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That is one argument that's often given, and I think a fairly compelling one. Calvin makes that argument, as do a number of other scholars. There are also scholars who say that this is actually Matthew employing the Hebrew technique called gematria. Now, if you haven't heard of this, in Hebrew, the consonants, there's no, there aren't vowels in Hebrew. The consonants correspond to numbers. And so you've heard this kind of thing in Revelation. The number of his name is 666. In other words, there's a correspondence between the consonants and the numbers that are telling you the value of the consonants and what they add up to in the number of the name. Right? And so what's happening here, some scholars are arguing, very reputable scholars, is that Matthew has picked a name that adds up to 14. If you take the consonants, it adds up to 14. Now, if you want to know what those consonants are, I'll give you the English transliteration. D, V, D. What name would you say if you saw those three consonants? David. And that the focus here is upon Christ as the Davidic king. Who's right? I don't know. They both sound great to me. Here's what I ultimately do know. We are being driven from Abraham through David to the Christ. And clearly, David as the king is being focused upon as Christ as the king is coming in the fullness of time. Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the king of the Jews, the one promised to sit on David's throne forever, will and has come. That's what we're being focused on. That's what's clear. Why that focus for Matthew? Well, this brings us back to our Old Testament. When man fell into sin, God promised to send the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, the Savior, the second Adam, to crush the head of the serpent, to save us from our sins, to do what the first Adam failed to do, to live holy, sinlessly, to keep God's law in all regards so that we might be delivered. You hear that in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time. God sent forth his son, born of woman, pointing you to Genesis 3.15, born under the law, keeping it as Adam failed to. He promised to send that seed of the woman through Abraham's offspring. And although I touched on it only briefly, I'll remind you really quickly of those emphases from Genesis 12, which we're going to come back to after our Christmas series. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. When the Lord comes in covenants with Abraham, he promises three things primarily. He promises him that he'll have a land and that that promised land is where God would dwell with them. We can see that in Genesis 12, 1. We can see that in Genesis 17, 7 through 8. We can see that in Leviticus 26, 9 through 12. We can see that a lot of places. That his promised land is the place where God would dwell with them. He promises Abraham, secondly, a seed or an offspring that would grow into a mighty nation. Genesis 12, 2. We see that come to fruition in Exodus 1. Grow into a mighty nation. Third, he promised Abraham that his seed or his offspring would bless all the families of the earth. Genesis 12, 3. 
and Genesis 12, 7, and Genesis 22, 17 through 18, that the offspring of Abraham would be a king who rules over and blesses all the nations. Abraham's told in Genesis 17, 6 that kings would come from him. Most importantly, that the king that comes from Abraham would subdue all the nations and he would rule over them and bless them. That's what we hear in Genesis 49, 8 through 10. Most expressly in the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples of the nations. So the Messiah will come from Abraham, from the nation of Israel, and specifically from the tribe of Judah. Fast forward in the life of Israel. God's covenant to Abraham is furthered in one sense and narrowed in another sense. Narrowed in this sense. The covenant which is with mankind, with Abraham and his offspring, namely in the people who we know as Israel, with the tribe of Judah, is now narrowed to the house of David. To the house of David. David was a man from the tribe of Judah. And God promised that his son would sit on the throne forever. Listen to what it says in Psalm 89, 1 through 4. Just hear this. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever. And build your throne for all generations. So this messianic king would subdue the earth, would save God's people, would bless all the nations. And he is the son of Abraham and the son of David. Now, I want to press this one step further. And the guys in Deeper have heard this from me the last couple of weeks. The Hebrew canon, I don't know if you guys know this because... In our English canon, we don't order the books in the same way they were originally ordered in the Hebrew canon. The Hebrew canon begins with the book of Genesis. That's the same for us. The book of genealogies. A book that's actually arranged around genealogies. The book of Genesis. It's arranged around genealogies. And you have a quick series of genealogies from Genesis 2 through 11. And those genealogies cover over 2,000 years of world history in just over 10 chapters. And they drive you to a genealogy of one man, Abraham, and then the rest of the book of Genesis is about Abraham. The rest of the book, about Abraham and his offspring. It's what it's about. In fact, Abraham and his family comprise the rest of the story not only of Genesis, but Abraham's covenant underwrites the whole of the life of Israel in the Old Testament. In fact, the Jews understood themselves fundamentally as the children of Abraham. We see that when Jesus comes on the scene. Abraham is our father. He, if you will, overshadows, or probably more properly, underwrites the whole story of the Old Testament. Then you come to the last book of the Old Testament in the Hebrew order of the canon. You know what the last book of the Old Testament is in the Hebrew order? When you come to our Old Testament, the last book is Malachi, the last prophet. But actually, in the Hebrew order of the canon, the last book is Chronicles. Now, we call it First and Second Chronicles because we've split it in half. Just like we have First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, we've, we've split all those books in half. And we have Ezra and Nehemiah, originally one book as well. So when we say we have 39 books in the Old Testament, that's because we've split some. (laughs) But here's the point I'm driving at. The last book of the Old Testament is Chronicles. 
Do you know how Chronicles starts? You might because you've probably tried to read through your Bible and here you get bogged down. Ten chapters of genealogies. So the first book of the Bible starts essentially with just over ten chapters driving you through genealogy after genealogy after genealogy to the focus on Abraham and the Messiah coming through him. And then the rest of the Old Testament underwrites, really that covenant underwrites the rest of the Old Testament story. The last book of the Old Testament begins essentially with 10 chapters of genealogies driving you to one man. And you know who that one man is? David. And the rest of the story is about him. So the Bible begins with all these genealogies driving you to Abraham and concludes with all these genealogies driving you to David. And then it goes silent with the people of Israel essentially being oppressed by foreign enemies, not having seen the son of Abraham or the son of David come in a kind of state of unbelief and unrepentance as a nation. And the Bible just goes quiet. 400 years. God stops speaking. 400 years. Where's the son of Abraham? Where's the son of David? Where's the Christ? Are God's promises to Abraham and David going to hold true? If so, where is it? Where is he? Will God be faithful to his word? Folks, I know this is easy for us to look back on in history and kind of compress time and make it seem like no big deal. 400 years is longer than America's existed as a nation. 400 years. Our Bible starts telling us about the son of Abraham and concludes telling us about the son of David. Where is he? Where is he? And then Matthew opens with this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Do you hear it? There it is. The whole Old Testament, from beginning to end, summed up in one verse. Of course God is faithful to his covenant promise. Of course he is. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus. I don't just say that. That's Paul who says that. Christ is the clearest evidence, the supreme evidence of God's faithfulness. Friends, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ... If you're not someone who's repented of your sins and cast yourself upon Jesus for mercy, then God's faithfulness ought to cause fear in you. Ought to cause fear in you. Whether you believe in the Lord Jesus or not, God will keep his word. He will be faithful to what he promised. And that is no comfort for an unbeliever. No comfort. For those who are not in Christ, God's faithfulness is a terror. If you've been hearing of his grace in Christ and you reject him, then let his faithfulness to his word be a terror to your soul and bring you to repentance. Children, you've been hearing of God's faithfulness your whole life. If you've grown up in a Christian home, You've been in a Christian church. You've not only been hearing of God's faithfulness your whole life, you've seen God's kind works toward your family and in Christ. You've seen it. If you reject him, children, in spite of all the faithfulness you've heard and all the kindness God has shown, if you reject him, the same faithful God who gave all these kind works will stay true to his word and cast you into hell. 
You need to trust in Christ. Sovereign grace, if you are trusting in Christ, if you are his, then you should remember God's faithfulness to his word. And you should take comfort. You should take comfort. The Lord our God is faithful to all his promises. All his promises. Children, you have the immense privilege of growing up in a Christian home as part of Christ's church. You're hearing God's promises. Your parents and your pastors are praying for you. I can tell you, kids, you might not know this, but on Tuesdays, children, when the pastors meet together, uh, Russ, Jason, and I, we pray for your parents and for you by name. We're praying for you. No matter what you're going through, no matter how small the concern, you need to know that God is faithful. God is faithful. He will keep his word and he will be kind in his works. His kindness has been shown to you in that you're in a Christian home and you've heard of the Christ who came for you. If he has already been so kind to you, then you do not need to question his kind intention for you. Sovereign grace, God promised you salvation in his son and he gave him for you. No matter what difficulty you may be going through now, God is faithful. God is faithful. If he gave you his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give you all things? Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? Sovereign grace, God is faithful to his word. He is God. He cannot lie. And really to turn to our second theme, God is kind in all his works. He's faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. Our second theme, the Lord is abundantly gracious to sinners. Look with me at some of the names in this genealogy. And as we look, I want you to remember that this is the lineage of the Christ, the Messiah, our Lord and Savior. But look at some of these names. First look at Matthew 1.3. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. Tamar, a woman. Women don't generally appear in genealogies. That's unusual. But not only is a woman appearing here, This is a woman who put herself out as a prostitute to enter an ancestral relation with her father-in-law. This is also a woman who was not from Israel. And yet, and yet, she's pivotal in the continuing line of the Messiah. That's striking. But he goes on, look at verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, also a woman, also a prostitute, also not from Israel, a Gentile. Look also at Matthew 1, 5 again. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, also a woman, now a godly woman, she's a godly woman, not a Jew, She's a Moabite. Now here's what's fascinating about her story. Where do the Moabites come from? They come from the incestual relationship between Lot and his daughters. You remember that horrific scene after Sodom and Gomorrah? It is horrifying. And it gives birth to a 
manifestly wicked nation called the Moabites. And yet, out of that wicked nation, God calls Ruth, who trusts the Lord and through whom the Messiah comes. I just want you to stop and think about this, friends. When the Bible says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, that is not merely true in your individual life. That is true throughout redemptive history for the people of Israel. Who of us would have decided that through the wicked ancestral relationship between Lot and his daughters, the Christ would be brought. Fourth, look at verse 6, the second half, after Jesse, the father of David the king. Look there. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, this is talking about Bathsheba. She's not even named. She's just called the wife of Uriah, which ought to set you off to a problem. How does David have a child by the wife of Uriah? Uriah is a Hittite. Likely Bathsheba was a Hittite also. That means she's not a Jew. She's a Gentile. Also a woman. Mentioned not by name, but by the adulterous relationship between her and David. These are all women, which is highly unusual in genealogy to begin with. But these are all women over whom a pale of suspicion would be cast due to moral indiscretions either in their personal life or their family line in the case of Ruth. These are all women not from Israel. Yet these are all women whom the Lord redeemed and through whom the Lord brought to fruition his covenant promise to send the Christ. Friends, this clearly demonstrates the kindness of the Lord. He does not overlook the insignificant. He does not cast aside the sinner who turns to him. He has his eye on the least of us. And he cares for us. Children, did you hear that? I remember as a child hearing the phrase, and, and I'm sorry if you've grown up hearing it. You shouldn't. Parents, if you say it, just repent and move forward. Ask their forgiveness. But I remember hearing this phrase, children are meant to be seen and not heard. But young ones... While some adults may not hear you, God sees you, and God hears you, and he remembers you. He cares for you. He is the Lord who loves us and remembers his covenant promises to us. Even the smallest and most insignificant among us. And friends, even the most sinful, unclean, despised, and rejected among us. The Lord sees you. The Lord knows you. The Lord hears you. The Lord remembers you. He remembers you. No matter how much your sin abounds, his grace abounds all the more. All the more. That's shown in spades, really, not just from the women. Sometimes we don't pay attention to this, but through the wicked kings in this genealogy. If you pay attention to some of these kings, let me just give you a couple of examples briefly. Look at Matthew 1, 9. We'll just read 9 through 11. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was wicked. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was wicked. And Manasseh, the father of Amos, also wicked. And Amos, the father of Josiah, not wicked. And so we, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, wicked. And his brothers, also wicked. You guys get the point. 
Let me just focus briefly, though, on Manasseh. On Manasseh. Do you know Manasseh's story? I don't want you to turn to Second Chronicles, but I do want you to hear some of it. Listen to this. Here's the summary statement by the chronicler about Manasseh as king. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now notice this. This next phrase is the real kicker. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. If you don't know how abominable those nations are, go back and read Leviticus. They would make any major city in America look like some kind of utopia. Listen to what he goes on to say about Manasseh. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. In other words, the place to worship idols. And he erected altars to the Baals to worship them. And made Ashereth and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord. He built altars to worship false gods in the temple. Of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of the heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And no, listen, and he burned his sons as an offering. He sacrificed his sons to fire as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Pick the most wicked elected leader you can think of in America. And then imagine it getting to the level that he comes into our churches and starts requiring the worship of false gods and he starts throwing his own children into fire as an offering to false gods. That's the kind of king we're talking about. And he used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery, and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking the Lord to anger. Now listen to how the chronicler sums up his rule. Manasseh led Judah, that's the southern kingdom of Israel, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray, to do more evil, listen to this, to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. And now hear how Manasseh refused to listen to the Lord. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to all his people, but they paid no attention. If ever a man was dead in his trespasses and sins and walked after the course of of the prince of the power of the air. It was Manasseh. It was Manasseh. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. I want you to hear the kindness of the Lord, even to a man like this. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. You'll say, that doesn't sound kind. It is. The Lord could have struck him dead and cast him into hell at that moment. Instead, the Lord chastens him. And listen to what happens next. And when he, Manasseh, was in distress, he entreated the grace of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the Lord, the God of his fathers. He prayed to him. Now listen, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Sovereign grace, behold your God. He is rich in mercy. He is faithful to all his promises, 
and kind in all his works. And friends, I have barely mentioned how Matthew points out the sin of King David with regard to Uriah, one of his mighty men who was faithful to him. His sin against not only Uriah, but Bathsheba and the nation of Israel, and most eminently in David's mind, against the Lord. Listen, the reason Israel's driven into exile is because of wickedness among the people, and especially the kings, yet the Lord graciously promised to save them. Their wickedness was not going to thwart his faithfulness. In spite of their faithlessness, the Lord remained faithful. In spite of their wickedness, the Lord remained kind. God was good to Israel over and over again, and she rejected him over and over again. Yet God made a promise, and God keeps his promises. This is so because he is true, and he is kind. That's who he is. And he is kind or gracious in making the promise to save a wicked people like us. Sovereign Grace, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Yet the Lord promised to save us. And he's pleased to do so. Now, I want you to hear this last point because... I was reading Owen's Communion with God again, as some of us are with the fellowship of pastors we meet with. And I was stunned anew by Owen when he emphasized the fact that not only did the Lord promise to save us, but he's pleased to save us. I think we sometimes think that God saves us begrudgingly. But Sovereign Grace, before time began, God decreed to save us in his son. Before we were ever born, God uttered that promise in history and began unfolding it throughout history. Mankind continually transgressed God's law. We continually rebelled. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive Adoption as sons. This is all of grace. It is his purpose, and hear this, and his delight. His delight to save you, to give himself to you. Do you ever stop to slow down and stop and think about that? God didn't save you begrudgingly. He delights to save you. Think of the biblical picture of betrothal, I'll end on this. We are said to be betrothed to Christ. That's like our form of engagement, except you have to be divorced to get out of it. We're said to be betrothed to Christ. He takes his church, us, as his bride. Now think of when you go to weddings. Think of the moment in a wedding when the minister says, who gives this woman to be married or united to this man. And the father says, I do. Beloved, when the eternal question went forth, who gives this wretched sinner, this porn-watching, adulterous, hateful, gossiping, foul-mouthed, selfish sinner to be united, married to, This man, Jesus Christ, this holy, innocent, and undefiled man, who gives this harlot of a woman to be united to this holy man, the Son of God? In reply to that, from all eternity and throughout the unfolding revelation in history, the Father joyfully cries out, I do. I do. And as stunning as that is, the gospel becomes even more breathtakingly, soul-captivatingly beautiful. How so? Because Jesus looks at us 
as his bride and sees not the sinful, wretched harlot that we are. Rather, Jesus sees the delight of his heart. He sees us as fair and beautiful and pure and clean and holy. He sees us and says, as for the saints in the land, that's us. They are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. He sees us this way because we've been made this way by being united to him. Sovereign grace, behold your God. He is faithful in all his word and kind in all his works. Trust him. Meditate upon this. And let Christmas be a season of thanksgiving for it. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful to you that you would give us to your son, your holy, sinless, innocent son. We give thanks that you would joyfully give us as sinners to him. That you delight to do that. That you promised it and that you fulfilled it. We give thanks that the groom, Jesus Christ, delights in us, his church. We know this is all of grace. You are a God who is faithful in all your words and kind, kind in all your works. And we rejoice in you. Forgive us when we lose sight of this. And stir us to meditate on it day and night. In Jesus' name, amen.